Hello and welcome to the Overland Journal podcast. I'm your host, Scott Brady, and I'm here at the Overland Expo Mountain West. And we're recording the podcast here in our camper. And we have a very interesting guest today, someone who's done a lot of international travel and has been very thoughtful in how he has prepared his vehicles. Richard Giordano, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. I feel like I don't deserve to be here based on the legendary guests that you've had, you had before me. You definitely deserve to be here. It's me that does not deserve any of this. I feel so lucky. Every day I feel like I'm waking up in a dream. The fact that I get to interview these great people and do the work that I do. So I think we're all really lucky. 100%. We're going to take a brief break and we will be right back. This week's episode is supported in part by iCamper. They make innovative hard shell and soft-sided roof tents that are designed to survive long-term overland use. Their revolutionary X-Cover won the Overland Journal Editor's Choice Award, eliminating the bulky PVC cover and also allowing for the fitment of crossbars for carrying bikes and kayaks. Their SkyCamp Mini is another award-winning design that provides a hard shell tent in the footprint of a much smaller clamshell model. This is the perfect solution for smaller vehicles or on vehicles where rack space is dedicated to other systems. iCamper believes that the best times are those spent traveling, discovering the world with those you love most. You can find out more about their quality tents at iCamper.com. Yeah. And I remember, and I mentioned this when I interviewed Ashley, is I remember starting to see your content coming out when you started your trip, Desta Glory, going all the way down to uh, the tip of, of South America. And I remember one of the things that stood out to me was the quality of the editorial that you were producing and the quality of the images that you were producing. And also the fact that the vehicle that you chose was so accessible. It felt to me that it's the exact kind of story that we needed to have told in the industry, which is just go and do it. And you don't have to have a $100,000 G-Wagon to go to the tip of South America. America, which you absolutely don't. In fact, it's probably the worst vehicle to do that with. What inspired you to pick the vehicle that you did to go all the way down to Panama? Yeah. So we went uh, all the way down to Ushuaia, actually. But That's uh, right. You went to Panama first <laughs> yeah. and then you... That's right. Yeah. Um, but we took a 1990 Toyota pickup. It's a just four-cylinder, 22RE, five-speed, super sim- simple truck. Um, the inspiration we had was that we... That's all we knew. We saw guy, people like Rune Adventures and Home on the Highway. Both of them had first gen forerunners and just slept in the back. And that's all I knew of international travel by vehicle. I didn't know it was called overlanding at the time. Sure. When I didn't really look too far beyond them, I saw the dangers in their 67 Volkswagen bus. I saw Luis and Lacey in their 60 series Land Cruiser. Sure. So I was like, oh, old truck, simple to fix. Um, and the one that we ended up taking was in my dad's backyard. Oh, that was perfect. Yeah. So it was sitting there. Um, my mom and her, uh, her husband were running a plumbing business. And then my sister used the truck as a, uh, as a runaround vehicle for the, for that business. So we always had like a heat pump in the back and pipe and everything just beat on. I don't know if the oil was ever changed in that period of time. Um, and eventually it was just sitting in the backyard. Windshield was cracked, leaking, moldy inside, but we took a look at it and, frame was good and the body was good. And I thought, well, if all of these other couples can do it and they're old Toyotas, surely we can too. Um, so we had a 2000 Silverado at the time and I wasn't super confident in that. And also I'd never seen, you know, I'd never seen anybody take, you know, domestic vehicle at that time down to South America. So we sold that, took that money, put it into the truck. We had a total of eight grand Canadian into it when we left, including sure. a new long block, a uh, new clutch, 
uh, old man emu suspension. And then, yeah, we just threw a canopy on the back, little CBT rooftop tent. And by far the best thing we did was put the ARB fridge in. Um, but you know, we had $8,000 Canadian at the time. It was worth six grand, uh, American. Sure, so, sure. uh, that's all we knew. And we did it. We threw Rubbermaid containers in the back. Ashley had a suitcase. <laughs> sure. um, we didn't have any fancy duffel bags or packing cubes or anything. Sure. And, and uh, amazingly, you guys make it all the way to Ushuaia, right? With, uh, <laughs> with really no problems, which is kind of, yeah, kind of crazy. But isn't that the irony of it is, is that maybe a lot of travelers delay leaving because they feel like they need X or Y. And really what is best done is to save that money for fuel and experiences along the way. I think one of the things that's been most helpful in recent years is seeing all of these trips that are being done with very standard vehicles. Uh, So there's been trips all the way down to Ushuaia that are done with a Honda Element or with a, just a passenger sedan, or like the French have been doing for decades, like an RV with their family on board. And it's totally feasible to do that entire route with a standard vehicle. So starting off with an inexpensive Toyota pickup, which that variant of the Toyota was sold in many of those countries. It was before the Tacoma. So a 22RE would have been very popular and parts would have been available. What a great choice. And the fact that it was just sitting in your mom's backyard. Yeah, just it was there, it was accessible. And we just, yeah, it took, I worked on it for four weekends because it wasn't in, the, wasn't in the same town that we lived in. So every weekend for four weekends, went there, worked on one project. So one once was swap the engine. Uh, the next time was suspension. Next time was put a canopy on a rooftop tent. And then the last weekend was just tidying up loose ends, doing electrical and a little bit of solar. And we left. Oh, that's amazing. So we didn't have time to think about whether what we were doing was right or wrong, or, uh, if we had the right gear or if we, any of that, we just had a very limited amount of time before we wanted to leave and, uh, nothing else really mattered. And it, it seems like that you have a lot of personal interest in understanding how the vehicles work, taking taking the time to get them prepared properly. What is some of the advice now that you've done that whole trip in a 22RE Toyota pickup? At the other end of it, what were the things that you changed about the vehicle that you most appreciated? And maybe what were some of the things that you would have done differently for the next time? Yeah. So the nice thing is that uh, there is going to be a next time. Uh, we have a good big trip planned. Well, we had one planned coat, long story, but, uh, it's, you don't know things until you know them. And we had no idea when we first left what we needed versus what we wanted. Um, we had seen that a rooftop tent was available that existed, I guess. Um, and it gave us the opportunity to use the back for storage, for hiking gear and for any sort of other activities we wanted to do. We didn't know any better and we left and we spent, you know, 18 months traveling out of that truck, even though it was definitely not perfect and it wasn't organized and it was a real pain sometimes to access gear. Sure. So by far the biggest thing we learned was a, the fridge is probably the most important thing that we, um, that we installed. Um, and then that B organization is key. Um, C really quickly is that inside space is really, really nice to have when you want to live on the road. Um, when you're camping and when you're, when you have a choice of what kind of weather you want to be in rooftop tent is great. And living outside is fantastic. And probably the greatest part of that whole South America trip chasing summer, living outside temperature was always moderate. We had maybe two weeks of rain in 18 months. Wow. When you don't have the choice to travel during those specific summer, fall, spring months, being able to get inside the camper when the weather gets bad and be comfortable and have a little home is it's, 
priceless. Or even not advertising that you're camping. Yeah. Cause one, I don't know how many times you encountered this, but oftentimes, you know, your, your day gets interrupted. Something happens, uh, you get a flat tire or something on the vehicle needs to be worked on, or you need to do some paperwork for the next border crossing or whatever. And then you don't make it to where you wanted to arrive at. So then you're sleeping in the gas station parking lot. And the challenge with a roof tent in that case is now you've advertised to everyone that I'm camping. Yep. And we, and we spent many, many nights in gas station parking lots throughout yeah, South America. Sure. Even with our uh, future setup, we're doing a wedge camper, go fast camper. At least it's within its own footprint, as opposed to the soft shell rooftop tent that we had that folds open. We're taking up two parking spots. Sure. We're feeling very vulnerable inside. And yeah, it's a it's nice to be a little bit secretive and be able to do everything we want within the actual vehicle. And I, I never encountered anything that made me feel unsafe. It was more just once you advertise that you're camping, then the locals are interested and they're curious about they always what, come out what you're doing. And they, you know, they'll, you'll feel them climbing up the ladder to go, you know, check things out. Kind of like what we're experiencing at Overland Expo here. We have to put a, a big sign on the door that says that we're on air because otherwise everyone would want to come and see the camper. And it's the same thing when we're traveling is that the locals are curious, which I think is amazing, but there's times when you do need to rest and you're tired from the day's activities and you want to get some sleep and not advertising that you're camping is a good thing. Yeah. And I'm pretty introverted. So I recharge by being alone or even with Ashley and by doing things where it's quiet and I'm not distracted. So uh, sometimes it can be exhausting, even though they're always great experiences when we meet everybody. It's nice to, you know, have a little bit of a choice of when we do meet people. Yeah. I think one of my most favorite ones was in on the Northern route of Mongolia. And I, I wake up in my tent in the morning and I'm kind of getting ready for the day, a little tent, little Nemo airbeam tent. Yep. And this little Mongolian kid just like crawls in and just sits at the end of the, <laughs> of the, of the tent and just sat, sat there and watched me, you know, pack up my sleeping bag and everything. And, and at first it was a little, I mean, I knit, I was not concerned at all. And he, he was very quiet and he just sat there and watched me. And then I realized that that's is how they live in, in their gers there. The whole family is in a tent and, the, yeah. and they would all, that personal space would be very different for them. And this was very normal to him. This is a really weird looking gur. <laughs> This little lime green tent. And I'm going to go check out and see what this person's doing. And, and and actually, it was one of the highlights of the trip for me was to have that interaction that felt very natural to him. And it became natural to me to understand that I'm in a different place. So it is it is nice to have those local interactions. But it sounds like that Ashley and you are interested in making this also a place where you work. Yes, for And sure. you need to be productive when you're on the road. So before we get into that, because I do want to talk about that, but let's talk a little bit more about, so it sounds like the roof tent in some ways was great, yeah. but you learned that you wanted to have some inside space to retreat to. Um, what were some of the other things that you learned from that trip? Um, the biggest thing is that when overlanding, the biggest thing that you need is the ability to adapt. Mm-hmm. And whether that is to a timeline that's gone awry or whether that's to your vehicle that maybe something's not working properly or maybe you're not as organized in a way that you feel like you should be, you can change absolutely everything on the road. It doesn't have to be, it definitely doesn't have to be perfect, perfect before you leave. Um, I did plenty of modifications to our truck, added a drawer system in the campground in Ecuador. Nice. Um, You know, you, you don't always have access to every, like to materials and so on. But when you go to a major city, almost everything you'd ever want is there. There's always a four by four shop. You can always get a 
extra snatch strap. You can get more bow shackles, um, yep. shackles. So there's always something that you can add to your kit or change along the way. You don't have to be perfect before you leave. Oh, that's such important advice. And and maybe even you experience this as well is that you find yourself getting rid of things as you're traveling along because yeah. you left with more than you, you needed. Yeah. And a lot of, and that's, I guess, another thing is that once you go and do it, you actually know what you need yeah. and you have... We have so much more confidence this time in making those decisions because we live on the road for 18 months that we don't have to second guess. Um, oh, do we need four max tracks? Do we need two max tracks? Sure. Um, we mostly used our max tracks on other people, but when we did have them, they were invaluable um, to use on ourselves. But I'm okay with taking two and saving the weight sure. instead of having a full set. Um, but that's because of the way we travel. I know that we don't take a necessary risk when we're by ourselves because I would rather be making it to the next town so we can have dinner and enjoy the street food and so on rather than doing like an especially technical trail. Um, Being prepared enough and having the skills to know that between airing down significantly, adding some max tracks and having a uh, recovery strap that we can use if we, that we can use if we um, need to hail a local. Sure. Um, There are ways around everything. So you can um, always make a plan or the locals will all show up and you push the truck out. I mean, it's exactly, it's funny how you, or they'll bring along a oxen and, and pull you out that way. Uh, The number of times that overlanders have been rescued by livestock is I think is pretty awesome. Or the the little local tractor, you know, they drive it out there on the beach and pull you out. And, and I think that that is, it's so important to remember that on a remote technical trail in North America, you typically do want to have that kind of equipment Mm -hmm. because it can be very challenging. Like that's one of the benefits of travel in North America is that you can purposefully go out and look for something difficult, which I think is great to keep our skills tuned up. But I also find that when I travel internationally, I stop, I start backing off on the risk because if something breaks, it's just going to be very disruptive. It's going to be hard to find parts or you've got to have them shipped in and it's a lot more difficult to repair vehicles in yeah. the developing world. Yeah, we met some good friends that had a Pinsgauer with a swapped BMW engine. Mm-hmm. And when that was a new build and they crossed the Sahara and everything, it was fantastic. But I think both the times that we met them in South America, they're waiting on parts. And um, yeah, we just try to avoid that as much as possible. As long as we can disrupt the travel as little as possible, that keeps me happy, keeps Ashley happy, and we can just... Sure. Yeah. And what else, what else did you find on that particular truck that you, you really liked at the end of it? You were really happy with it, that you were glad you brought it along. I was happy that when we brought a truck that had 320,000 kilometers on it, that I really didn't have to do anything to it other than basic maintenance. Um, and basic maintenance includes tie rod ends and ball joints because we travel such long distances and on pretty bad washboard roads. We didn't have any major failures. We just listened to what the truck was saying to us. It was making a weird noise or knocking or squeaking. You pay attention to it. Um, and we treated it like a part of our family and sure. and it, uh, it helped get us all the way down to the bottom of South America and back. Did you have a daily or a weekly maintenance schedule or inspection schedule for the truck? Did you have a way that you did that with regularity or did you have a process behind that? It wasn't strict, um, but I'm just constantly looking under the vehicle to see if there's a leak or I'm constantly feeling to see how the steering's changing or if the if the tires are cupping. Um, everything on that truck is it's quite nice because most of the mechanical pieces are quite visible. So I can just like keep my eye on things and see if there are any major um, symptoms of, of something going wrong. Um, but definitely not, it wasn't like a strict regular schedule, but it was pretty often. 
Yeah. Anytime we had a grass campground underneath checking everything out or uh, any chance we were in, anytime we were in a major city, even if, you know, we weren't ready for any maintenance, we'd get oil changed, do that, and then be able to put the truck up on a lift or at least um, on ramps just to get underneath, take a look at it and, and continue on from there. Did you find that repair parts, spare parts for that truck was available in South America? Yeah. So um, we had a issue with our clutch that failed at, I think it was 42 or 43 degrees Celsius in Panama and we were stop and go traffic for four hours. Um, and that kind of finished off the clutch at the time. And we went to um, Iguana 4x4 in uh, Barranquilla in Colombia. Yeah. And they pulled the truck apart, pulled the clutch out, ran to Toyota, grabbed a new clutch and threw it in. Um, we rebuilt the clutch master at the same time. Parts were available. Brakes were always available. Tire ends. There was never a time we had to wait for parts. Yeah, Iguana 4x4. I've got great memories of that place too. So yeah, cool spot in, in Colombia. I don't know that they're still doing that anymore, but I think they even ended up with a shop in Bogota for a while. Yeah, too. they had two. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. You can find those local four wheel drive shops because there's enthusiasts everywhere that yeah. want to go out and explore in their Land Cruiser or whatever. And you can find those, those little shops to get that work done. Yeah. And, and you know, the right ones to choose. So we were in Lima at the time and or at one, one time and uh, we needed to get tired and swapped out. And we went to this one shop and we rolled in and there were three trucks that had total chaos, long travel and Kings. And there was a Bronco with a swapped end, like classic Bronco with a swapped engine, a bunch of FJ cruisers and a bunch of land cruisers. And I was like, okay, this is the spot I want to be. <laughs> sure. I, I trust that we can get the work done here. Yeah. Um, and then there are other places where you like, hey, well, maybe we'll just pass by and <laughs> see what else we can find. Yeah. Keep going. Exactly. Yeah. And when you brought the truck back, you did do a, like a complete refresh on it. Yeah. And I'm asking these questions just because of how much I appreciated your vehicle. I just, I thought it was such a charming solution and you were so thoughtful in the way that you modified it. So I'm just curious when you got back, what were the major changes that you made and, and has that been a positive thing for the vehicle? Yeah. So I've always been into cars and like hot rods and trucks and stuff like that, but I've never had a good excuse to modify them until now. Now. Yeah. Um, and and again, anybody listening, probably the best bet is to take a vehicle that's as stock as possible around the world because it's more than capable. Almost any vehicle is perfectly capable to drive around the world. I don't know. I just I wanted to try some new things. And especially after coming back from South America, I had a lot of ideas of kind of like wish list dream type things I wanted to try out. Yeah. Each come with pros and cons. Yeah. So we, we ended up doing, well, I tore the whole truck apart in terms of all of the camping accessories, stripped off the camper and, or the uh, camper shell and the, and the rooftop tent. Um, the old manual suspension was pretty worn out after, you know, 120, 130,000 kilometers and sure. like all of being fully loaded and sure. And on rough roads, I knew we wanted some inside living space and we also knew that we wanted to take this truck on the next adventure. And part of that was that regardless of how much time and money and effort we spent building it still a 30 year old truck sure um it's accessible if we can take this you can take your 2000 tacoma or forerunner or corolla or whatever you want to take around the world it's a dumb old truck and i love it so we wanted to i don't know keep on driving it plus it's small and it fits in every major city that we've ever been in so that's a major consideration. I think there's also a lot to be said for not going into debt, not having a huge expense. Uh, during the interview with Ashley, she she really focused on the fact that when you guys were, when you came back from Central America, everything you spent money on, you related it to a day of travel. 100%. If you look at buying a new vehicle, that could be years of travel. Yep. It's a big expense to, to buy a new vehicle and to outfit it properly. So by using a truck that you already have, 
you've gained now potentially years on the road by not having that expense. And I think also there's the, if you want to go into Africa, there's the Carnata Passage. Yep. So if you want to go into Mongolia on your Silk Road trip, there's a Carnet that's required for that. Mm-hmm. A Carnet on a 30-year-old Toyota is cheap. Yep, 100%. A Carnet car on a brand new Gladiator or whatever else is extremely expensive. Yeah. And, and not to mention that most of the time we can't get insurance on our yeah. vehicle. So we wanted to take something that, God forbid, we get in an accident, it's kind of and you know we have to leave a vehicle there or if it catches on fire or if it gets stolen um we can just take our backpacks yeah. and continue traveling maybe buy a couple loader local motorcycles Ex- and off you go exactly <laughs> they're like we can go to russia and grab a couple vans or yeah. whatever it is and yeah there's there are plenty of ways to do it we can do it by foot we can yeah just get out and travel however we multitude of different ways but that was definitely one of the ways of thinking try to take something we already had we didn't have to spend any money on it um except for the changes that we made i don't know it's fun to take pictures of so Oh, Let's it, be honest. It looks, it, does, it looks great <laughs> in photos. I can't think of anyone that would ever look at that vehicle and and not just be charmed by it. I mean, you even if they don't like Toyotas, maybe they're a Land Rover person. And but seeing a classic yeah. Toyota pickup going around the world is cool. We, I mean, we, we've always had, we've had conversations at every gas station that we've ever stopped at from here to Argentina. Sure, it doesn't matter whether people are like, I've had a pickup, I've had a Hilux. It's a conversation starter, and it's fun. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. But yeah, so coming back, we wanted to make some changes um, to make it more comfortable, both on like driving on road and off road and then also in park. We did our best to try to keep the truck as light as possible because it puts something like 65 horsepower down to the wheels, keeping GVWR in, in mind. But really just keeping in mind how slow we would go up hills if this thing was heavy. Sure. Was a pretty key factor in a lot of decisions that we made. Being more organized than we were before was key inside living space also key in terms of just having like privacy, comfort, and an ability to work inside. And then we just had to fit, there are a few other things that just like in the truck itself in terms of the interior. So we added a lock box and our toughy center console in the middle. So we have more locking storage sure. and comfort, place to rest our arm, more cup holders. Important. You know? Yeah, Important. we did. We, there were only two cup holders before and they held <laughs> like the tiniest little disposable coffee cups. So we wanted to make sure we had something that would hold a two, one liter Nalgene. Sure. Uh, we added better seats because the 30 year old seats were pretty worn out, pretty much had no support. So yeah, we just made the interior a little bit more livable. It's nothing compared to a new truck, but after a few days on the road, you kind of forget what a new truck feels like. Um, you, yeah, you don't miss the heated seats, right? <laughs> uh, don't miss the heated seats. I miss the air conditioning. That's <laughs> it doesn't what, have air conditioning. It does not have air conditioning. Okay. That, yeah, that would be worth yeah, we, considering. There, there, there sure. were some, there were some sweaty days in, uh, in Central <laughs> oh, America. I, I can imagine. Wow. Yeah. So then, yeah. So we had a go fast camper and a goose gear L-shaped bench with a couple drawers because I really wanted to be able to access anything fairly quickly. And most of the time I want to access gear in one motion, as opposed to the way we did it before, where I would have to move forward or rubber meat containers and a duffel bag and a suitcase out of the way to access tools. So if I need to access a, a wrench to just to check a couple bolts, mm. I just open a side panel, pull up the tool roll, check a couple things, put it away. It doesn't take 20 minutes. It takes two minutes. Sure. That makes sense. Yeah. So adding up, like taking what we had before, which was super inefficient and making something a little bit more efficient um, in terms of usability was, was very key. One of the things that we I did a calculation on was how much time we'd save setting up camp with this new camper um, versus with the soft shell rooftop tent. And with 18 months on the road, we would have saved 24 hours of time with the simple go fast to sure. push up your hard shell tent versus a soft shell. I think a lot of people don't, don't know that when they buy a soft shell roof tent mm-hmm. is that they can be a huge effort 
to put away. Yeah. And especially the ones that have the zippered covers, it, when they're brand new, they work fine. So the first couple of times you use it, it's no problem. But once you get a little bit of dust and a little bit of sun exposure and they become brittle and you're fighting or it gets cold and the cover shrinks. Yep. And you're fighting those zippers. Yeah. yeah, you can easily spend fifteen to twenty minutes putting away a, a soft shell roof tent yeah. easily. I just felt like felt my fingertips just from the memory of putting those uh, tents away in the cold. So <laughs> yeah. it's a lot of work. It They're is comfortable. They are. They are. And we were talking about that actually before we started recording about how we've seen the shift from the soft shell tents towards the hard shell. And that's because they are so much easier to put up and to take down. Of course, the downside is, is that they're, they're a big investment. Yeah. And, and that is always something worth considering. It depends how much you're going to use it. Yeah. Yeah. If you're going to use it every day for two years, separate that investment over, you know, 700 days, it's not so bad. But I find, I find in the podcast that it's almost always the same consistent answer is those that have lived on the road with a roof tent, they come back and the next vehicle always includes something that they live inside yeah. instead of living around or on top of the vehicle. And I think, I think that that just simply comes down to there's some frustration in trying to access that one tool that you need because it's buried under 15 different things yeah. or you get stuck in that bad weather for a week or two weeks mm-hmm. and it starts to really affect the trip. And that's why I believe that a lot of long-term travelers end up, even if it's something very simple, like if you look at Land Cruising Adventures, they are living inside of a 45 Land Cruiser. They're amazing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They're awesome humans. Like (laughs) such cool, inspiring people, right? Yeah. And, but they do have a way to live inside that Land Cruiser to get out of the weather. Yep. And to, to have that own, their own little personal space, which yep. I think is a good idea. Yeah. And sometimes you just don't know until you've done it. And I remember uh, on Expedition Portal, I was kind of discussing what I was doing to the truck and uh, Louis Getter asked what I was doing for inside living space. And I said, oh, we don't need it. It's fine. We're going camping. And uh, I constantly remind him that he was right. <laughs> yes, we, we should have really focused on that, but it was fine. We survived. Um, I got a good core workout every time I opened and closed that, that tent. <laughs> sure. And, uh, uh, now we can actually speak to that experience and without struggling a little bit, you can't, you know, you, if you don't have the experience, you can't discuss it with other people. And it's nice to have that op- opportunity to do so. For sure. And it is good to struggle. I, th- I think that we work. You enjoy things better that way. I think we work hard, too hard sometimes removing the struggles because just recently on the, on the sailing trip that I did, I just didn't know what I was doing. And and I had to remind the people on the boat that did know what they were doing, that if I don't struggle, if I don't fight with this and learn it, if you just keep doing it, I will never get better. I'll never figure it out. Yeah. And I needed to struggle. And, and I think that that's true from the trips is that you come back and you're, you realize I need to have a fridge and I'm probably not going to put a soft shell tent on top of my truck yeah. for the next trip. Yeah. So you're right. Those, those, str- and those are great memories too, right? Those are the, the stories that of all the things that got, went wrong and the struggles and all of that. Those are the best stories mm. in the moment. They're not always the things that you're having the most fun with, but, uh, yeah, right. but we don't have a lot of, we have a lot of memories of great times on the road, but they don't make for good stories all the time. Yeah, true. Yeah. True. <laughs> and now for a quick break from one of our supporters Onyx Offroad. If you're driving or riding on dirt this summer, don't leave home without the Onyx Off-Road GPS app. For less than a tank of gas, get access to 550,000 miles of trails and roads and 985 million acres of public land for camping, fishing, exploring, and all of your outdoor adventures. 
Onyx off-road maps are fully interactive, meaning you can tap anywhere on the map for detailed information. Check out featured trails for trail descriptions, photos, difficulty ratings, and more. Your maps will even work without cell coverage, so you never have to worry about getting lost. Go to onyxoffroad.com and use the code OJ at checkout for 20% off right now. Thanks, Onyx. Now, what did you do to address the suspension for the additional weight? And you talked about suspension changes. Yeah. Um, so this is like the dumbest thing I did, but the thing I wanted to do the most was do a, a long travel suspension system on the truck. Um, part of that was that there are only so many options with these Toyota pickups. It's about torsion bars. Um, so you can, unlike the newer car, newer trucks with coilovers or at least uh, struts and so on, that there's only so much you can do with them other than putting a old man emu torsion bar and nitro charger shocks on it. Sure. Um, to be honest, it worked absolutely perfect for, for what we did. The value is fantastic. Mm. No maintenance, no noise. You just set it, you forget it and you just go on your merry way and you explore and you travel and it's, and it's great. Um, yeah. So I did a plus three and a quarter inch long travel kit from total chaos and two and a half inch icon shocks front and rear that are adjustable and secondaries in the front. And it's so dumb to put race car parts on a long-term truck, like traveling truck, but I just wanted to see what it would be like. Yeah. Well, and, you had and fun it, with it. And I, and I, and I wanted the comfort the performance. Um, we put some 63 inch Chevy springs in the rear that were custom made, um, to handle the weight of the camper and, um, and all of our gear plus being significantly longer springs than the factory ones. Um, it's a quite soft ride while being controlled. I took all of the things I wanted out of that suspension system and also took the things that I didn't want, which were a little bit more maintenance and more noise through the poly bushings and, and knowing that well ahead of time, I was happy to make this decision. And how did you address the track width with the rear axle? Um, I just, I current, well, a couple of things. Uh, I felt like it performed pretty well um, with a, the track width as, as it was, but I put a one inch uh, or one and a half inch wheel spacer in the rear, uh, just some quality rear, rear, rear wheel spacers with uh, the hub, hub centric wing, rings um, just to, keep that centered and, uh, and fairly strong. I don't necessarily like running wheel spacers, but I also happy running that rear axle. I don't need to put a wider rear axle in. So the rear axle is still a little bit narrower than the front, but it seems to track better that way. Um, along faster roads, which mm-hmm. is what we find ourselves on a lot. I know that some people have issues in, in deep mud and in snow and so on when you have a different uh, track width in the rear, but I have never really found that as a big problem for us. So I'm taking the, the good with the bad. Yeah, I think the only times that I've noticed it would be sand. You notice it quite yep. a bit and mud. You particularly notice it because then maybe the front tire is in one rut and the rear is fighting yeah. against another one. That's the only times that I have really found that to be For sure. a challenge. But I looked at some photos of it with the new suspension on there. It looks awesome. It, it looks awesome. It performs awesome. Um, a positive thing about it is that even though it requires maintenance, it is all very, very easily field serviceable. Mm. Um, as you don't need anything except a couple of wrenches and sockets, and you can take the whole thing apart and and uh, and replace spherical bushings or misalignment spacers or uniball. Super easy to replace. One thing we did was we left the lower ball joint in and all of the factory steering um, components. So all genuine Toyota lower ball joints and tie rod ends, uh, all the pitman arm. Mm. Um, the idler arm is a total chaos idler arm, but that's only because I went through three factory ones mm. on our trip. They're just uh, a weak point um, in the system when you are running washboard roads with larger tires and heavy weight. Where I could, I use factory components to for the longevity and where I couldn't, I live with it. 
Yeah, for sure. Just bring some spares. Talk a little bit about your next trip. You are you've prepared the truck to go at least to Europe. Yeah. Where do you guys want to go? And um, so what are the goals. So we moved out of our apartment in February, end of February, 2020, um, with the plans to ship our truck to Europe and drive east through. Well, probably go down to Morocco, go east through Europe, Central Asia, Russia, South Korea, Japan. We had this idea that we want to bring the truck back home to where where it was built in Japan, um, and that was the first place that Ashley and I ever traveled. So we want to go back and explore it a little bit, a little bit more. But yeah, so moved out of our place. February 24th, 2020, we did a trip up to Tuktuk with, with X Overland. By the time we made it back, COVID was in full effect yeah. um, and plans got derailed. So we are waiting until we're fairly confident that Overland travel through at least a few countries that we want to start in, in Europe is feasible um, and, da- and not dangerous um, and that would be welcomed. Mm. I don't want to go... S- start traveling around if people are, you know, struggling to survive. Yeah. So feeling fearful. Yeah. If they're outsider being there. Exactly. So if they're feel fearful of a, of a traveler wandering about and especially the way we travel where, you know, we're traveling through multiple countries and seeing everybody and talking to as many people as we can. Mm. Um, yeah, that's a, we could spread all sorts of things. So we just want to make sure that everybody, everybody that we see is comfortable and we'd be happy seeing us, I guess. Um, and then on top of that, um, knowing that we can actually make it through borders and get a, get our vehicle imported and all the rest of it. Well, that's very honorable that you and Ashley are, are taking into consideration the locals. They're, I mean, they're the most important part of the travel. Right? It's, it's meeting the people and eating their food and learning their culture. If we were going to go travel and not see them and not talk to them and not eat their food, um, we could just watch it on TV. <laughs> yeah. No, I think those are definitely the highlights is meeting them where they are. Yeah. And if we, if we come in as a foreign traveler into their country during a pandemic, I can see why uh, that would be, uh, that would be fearful for them. You know, I, even when this was all kicking off and I was in South Africa going into Swaziland, I remember the officials were even kind of like trying to maintain, they didn't know exactly. They just knew that they wanted to be far away from this foreigner. Yeah. And, uh, they probably didn't even know the, the concept of social distancing. I didn't either. We, we were all figuring it out. Yeah. Really and, is. but it, it, that is a natural human instinct to get away from something that could be threatening to them. And when I got back from that trip, I realized that I wasn't going to travel in Africa anymore. I needed to get home because it felt, it felt like I was putting unnecessary pressure on someone else. Yeah, for sure. Cause they needed to do their job. Their job was to let me into their country. Their borders were not closed. Yep. Um, but I can understand why they would be very fearful of someone who came from across the notion yep. and, and flew in with who knows what. Yeah. So you are the unknown. Yeah, totally. Totally. So that's really thoughtful of you guys to consider that in your travels going yeah. forward. So we'll, we'll just wait. Well, we've adapted as usual um, to a new schedule. Um, I think we're going to try to um, get our truck across the border from Canada into the U S and just kind of do a little zigzag route down through the Western States and go down to Expo West and um, just see some friends and travel some back country here. That is a little different than back home. Mm, so yeah, for sure. We'll do that in the meantime. And you've taken up a lot more more and more photography and, and video work. You did all of that work around the solo series for Expedition Overland, mm-hmm. which you guys did such a great job. Well, thank on. you. It was, it was fun. And the whole time we were wondering if it was going to be interesting at all. <laughs> that one photo of you guys setting up the camper in that, in those conditions was, it's epic. I mean, it looked like something out of, uh, you know, Star Wars. Yeah, it was, uh, there were a few times like that where I was glad that we were filming or an episode because instead of being, you know, upset or fearful or um, complaining about 
the situation we were in, I was like, yes, to film this and like show that we're doing something. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Show the struggle. Yeah. So, uh, so that helps, helps get us through for sure. What advice would you have for people that are, are hoping to begin documenting their own adventures, uh, maybe for their, their own goals of being able to work from the road? What did you learn in capturing that solo yeah. series that you, you think would be good advice? What kind of equipment did you use? What did you learn along that way? Yeah. So that's a great question because it's something we didn't do in South America. We didn't film any video. We shot a lot of photos. And um, that was wearing at times, sharing our entire journey. Um, sometimes you just don't want to take the camera out. You just want to enjoy a place for for the way it is. Um, yeah. So having the opportunity to go up to Tuk 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 and film that solo series for for Clay and Rochelle, it was a really really good learning experience to film as much as we can and to show don't tell. I yeah. guess um, try to show what we're doing, why, who are meeting, um, and just have the opportunity to edit in the, like once we actually get back and we can do some post-production, um, edit all the stories together in a way that's cohesive and makes sense and is all encompassing of the story we want to tell. Um, it requires a lot of filming. It requires thinking ahead every night of like, of things that we want to capture. Yeah. Batteries, uh, that, cold like, weather, all of the, all of that stuff. So, um, the first thing was like story because story is the most important part of this. If, if you don't have a story to tell and, or then the content's not interesting, um, nobody will watch it. And if you're doing it for yourself, it doesn't matter if you're doing it for yeah. your family, whatever, sure. it doesn't matter. But for, for us, we were doing it for expedition overland. We really, really wanted to be able to tell a compelling story. Um, so every night I would write down notes of what we did that day, notes of what we filmed, where I think this, where I thought the story was going to go. If I thought that the story was going to go in a certain direction, I would make notes for things to film the next day. Mm. Um, if, if something was starting to fail, if we were having trouble, with cold weather, like closing the, the habitat or whatever. Um, and we didn't really film it properly the first day. We'll film it better the next day. Um, and we have chances to do that all on the road. You don't have a chance to do that when you get home. Right. So you get all those pickup shots the next day instead of not ever having them. That's great advice to think about what is the story that you want, wanted to tell when you started the trip up to Tuk Tuk Tuk, what was the story that you wanted to tell? Um, I think there are a few things. One thing was sure we were in a fully built out expedition overland Tacoma but we're just two people in a truck driving north to Tuck. We didn't end up using any recovery gear. We didn't do anything special. We didn't do any technical trails. Most of them were all closed because of snow anyways. We just wanted to show that you can go and you can enjoy these places without, you don't have to spend too much money. You don't have to um, do a crazy route. You can just go and travel and see these places. It doesn't have to be complicated. Mm. Yeah. We met plenty of people going up uh, the Dempster highway in minivans with jerry can strapped to the roof sure. and a couple spare tires in the back. Uh, we met a couple in a Chevy Equinox from Jamaica who were going up to uh, Norman Wells to be in uh, their work as nurses. And, you know, they've never dealt, they've never been in the snow before. Sure. So they got helped out by the truck drivers on that road, to, like pulled out of <laughs> snow drifts multiple times. Sure. So you can be unprepared. I'd recommend being prepared in a few different ways, but you can be unprepared and you will find help. Yeah. Right? I've always thought that, you know, cause you'll often, those of us who like Toyotas will, will oftentimes see someone in a, in a Land Rover, let's say, and they're breaking down all the time and you think, oh, there's, it must be such a struggle for them and everything. But then I, a few years ago, I realized realize that also because I've had a lot of Land Rovers and I've had a lot of struggles with them, but <laughs> I realized that I oftentimes had some of the best memories in a Land Rover because I was constantly interacting with locals yeah. and overcoming challenges and figuring out a way to fix the car. And I think that if we, if we should always prepare in a way that keeps us safe or that meets the expectation of our travel partner, yep. 
but allowing for things to go wrong and allowing to not be overprepared for a little bit of serendipity yep. to occur. I think that that really adds to the trip. Yeah. And even if it's not, if you're not, even if you're not just allowing things to go wrong all the time, but just accepting that they went wrong yeah. and seeing where that leads mm-hmm. is it goes a long way. We had some fantastic times in South America with mechanics that we met who would invite us into their home, to their finca, to whatever, and mm-hmm. have shared amazing meals and amazing stories with people we never would have other men mm. otherwise met. And maybe that's the important reminder for all of us that travel is to go into the day and go into the trip with the mindset of things are going to go wrong. Yep. And that is why I'm they, doing this. It's why I want to go on an adventure and an adventure. The definition of it is just an undertaking with an unknown outcome. Yep. And if we come into it with the mindset of, I don't know how this is going to go. Things are going to go wrong. Things that I've spent a lot of money on are probably going to break or I'm going to lose them or they're going to get stolen or I'm going to realize I don't want them. And those can all be sources of frustration for us if we allow them to be. And maybe that's the most important consideration when we travel is just accepting the fact that things are going to go sideways. Yep sometimes really bad, but that's also why we chose to leave is to have an adventure. Yeah. And things are going to go wrong at home too. Yeah. So it's nice to get out of the, out of the bubble and the comfort and see the world. And the things that go wrong are usually not that bad. Um, But yeah, saying that everybody that we met in South America, didn't matter what vehicle they had, whether it was a 93 forerunner that was totally stock on bald tires or a brand new sportsmobile or XP camper or whatever it was, everybody had some sort of mechanical issue. It didn't matter how well prepared you were um, before you left. Somebody's having some sort of issue and that's okay. And everybody sorted it out, made the trip as far as they wanted to go and, and, and safely made it home. So it's uh, yeah, just something definitely to keep in mind. I mean, even a Land Cruiser, if you, if you beat on it long enough, eventually things are going to, exactly things are going to fail you or you're going to get a puncture or you're going to get lost or you're going to have a medical issue that you're going to have to go to the local clinic to try to get worked out. You may run out of diesel or gas or who knows what it is. But again, try to, you got to try to keep in mind that those are the stories that you hold on to and like you tell over and over again to the next trip, which we've been doing a lot because it's been a while. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I'm so excited for your next journey. I mean, the Silk Road will be, will be wonderful. Yeah. um, And we just can't wait to share that a little bit more. And that's why we're trying to get more and more into the filming and give people a little bit of a glimpse of what travel on the road is actually like. Try not to sugarcoat anything, um, show the struggles without complaining and uh, just show the people and the cultures and landscapes and all these things that are a little bit different from home and that show that not scary. It's a nice place to be. And I, I asked Ashley how she, what kind of work she was going to do from the road. What in your mind, the way that you've kind of constructed your career that, that dovetails with travel, what is going to be your focus going forward? And what have you found works well for you to make a living on the road? Yeah. So uh, we can step back to the South America for two more seconds. Let's keep on doing that. But when we left, Ashley was paralegal. I was a mechanical engineering technologist. We worked downtown and in, in different firms. We lived downtown Vancouver and that's all we knew. We didn't know that there was another way to make money. You know, there was an opportunity to make money on the road. And we started running into more and more people as we traveled that were working remotely. And we made that a goal for this time um, between when we got back in 2016 to now to be able to slowly transition, transition into something that is easy enough to do from the road and sustainable. Because if we can continually make enough money to survive and even better save money on the road, there's not a reason to come back until we want to come see family and, mm. and take a little break. So it's been a weird journey, I guess, trying to trying to make that happen. Um, the very first job I ever got that wasn't in the mechanical engineering field 
was for Toyota Canada. Um, I made a decision based on just a few opportunities that we had. Um, a good friend of mine, Dave Connors, uh, races with Kangaroo Racing, Kurt William, and he offered multiple times for, for us to come down and, and join them for an event. I also had a um, uh, friend, Aaron, who is a excellent videographer. I had a contact at Toyota Canada. So I wanted to mesh all of those together and go chase a race in Baja with Kangaroo and tell that story for Toyota Canada. And I decided that if I can make this happen, if I could get a contract, produce this one video, this one 12 minute long documentary on a Baja 1000 race and why these guys race a, a land cruiser in Baja, um, that if I could, if I could get a signed contract, I would quit my job and wouldn't go back until I ran out of other, other work or whatever it was. So, um, that was in 2017 and I haven't gone back to my engineering job since I've just kind of scrounged up all sorts of different projects along the way from more and more work with Toyota Canada to um, filming for Expedition Overland, to doing a lot of social media management as well. So being able to work with X Overland and Nomadic Outfitters and working at the gear shop um, in Calgary, Alberta, working with a little bit of sales and marketing remotely for them. That's a really fairly straightforward, sustainable way for, for me to work remotely. Um, and then we've got some other things on the go where we're hoping to document our our travels for not only for ourselves and for YouTube, but for, for uh, yeah, another big corporation. So, oh, good. Yeah, we got, that'd be great. we've been talking about it for a long time. And if it goes ahead, it'd be really good. One of the things that I always like to ask for those working on the road, how do you set up your schedule to be able to be productive while yeah. you're traveling? What have you found works well for you? Like what kind of an approach do you take towards that? Yeah. And we're pretty new to it, but we're realizing very, very quickly that we are going to have to travel very, very slowly. Um, thankfully, we like doing that. We have spent like months at a time in um, Santiago or Buenos Aires whenever we wanted to settle down and, sure. and just explore a, a city. So we're going to probably end up doing that quite a bit on this next trip. Um, stay in one place for a couple weeks at a time. We might have to work nine to five Monday to Friday or 12 hour days for three days a week or whatever it is to get sure. to get the work done and be relatively accessible via um, via email and Slack and Asana and all those things. Sure. So if we have to travel slowly, we travel slowly and it's, it's, it's going to be necessary for sure, based on how much work Ashley's doing for sure. Well, and it'll be interesting to hear what, what does end up working yeah. Because everybody seems to be a little different. Chris Cortez and Brittany, they, they'll work Monday through Friday mm -hmm. and then they, or Monday through Thursday, and then they travel on the weekends and others, they'll do it every other day or they'll, or they'll work four or five hours in the morning and then yeah. be back into travel mode. Yeah. I find myself the most efficient very early in the morning when it's quiet and there are no distractions. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the time I'll get up 530, make a coffee. I can get three hours or four hours of work done before there are any distractions. Sure. Um, so I find that that works really well for me. I also find that breaking up the day is very efficient for me as well. So if I work five hours in the morning and then we go take off and take a break and do some exploring for another four hours, go for a hike, um, go for a run, whatever it is, and then come back to it, I'm way more efficient than trying to struggle through a straight eight, nine hours of, of work at a time. Sure. And with you both being in the vehicle, like I find traveling with other people that I can do email and basic communications yep. very well from the passenger seat. And that helps me stay up on communications in the best ways that I can. But then when I'm writing or if I'm working on something for the business, I do need that quiet time. Yeah. I go if, in. if I try to do it any other way, I, it just ends up being a struggle. Yeah. I go into iPod mode a lot of the time where I just need to put the headphones on and 
edit photos or edit video or whatever it is and, and just get into it. Um, that can be in the camper or sometimes it's in an Airbnb. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes it's at a friend's house or somebody who's invited us in. Those are the special, the times that I especially try to get work done in the morning. If we were at a friend's place, just get up early. Don't want to, I'd rather spend my time or their time awake with them. Sure. So I'll just get up super early, get a bunch of work done. And oh, that's smart. Yeah. But well, we're not afraid to, I think the big thing was that without investing a whole bunch of money into our truck, I don't feel like we need to stay in it all the time. Mm. I know it's okay to stay in a Airbnb, do some laundry, be in a nice controlled area with air conditioning or whatever it is, get a whole bunch of work done very efficiently and then hit the road again. Yeah, that's smart. Well, good luck with all that. Those yeah, are going to be you. big. Those are going to be big changes and yeah. how exciting to be able to travel in that way with Ashley and that you both have your own skills that you bring to the table for all these different organizations. We're so so lucky that we like being two and a half feet apart from each other mm. at all times. Um, I don't think that's super, super common. She's my best friend. I don't really need to spend time with a whole bunch of other people sure. um, as long as she's around. And uh, we have these, it took a long time, I guess. And especially started once we started traveling, especially traveling overland was that all of our interests started really overlapping. And now, especially all the work starts overlapping and it's a, it's so much fun. We've had a lot of opportunity to, uh, she'll write an article and I can shoot the photos for it. Mm. Little like power team heading out into the woods and and meeting people. And those are pretty fun experiences. If you were to give some advice to someone that is new to overlanding, if you were, what would be your top two or three pieces of advice that you would give them before they started their first journeys? Hmm. Okay. So I'll tell you what we did. Um, We threw our truck together in four weeks and we left and we had never used our fridge or our rooftop tent. Um, We took, we had no, no shakedown run, nothing. (laughs) So that's, that's one thing to do, whether you have a stock vehicle or whether you already have a built vehicle, just to go out and try it and see what works for you. You'll know pretty quickly within First couple weekends, first few weekends of camping, um, whether you need to make a change or whether you don't need to make a change. Those are, that's one of the big things. Making sure that if you're going to be traveling to Central and South America, try to learn as much of the language as you can. Mm. It, I, I We missed out on so many opportunities because I didn't start learning Spanish until we got to Baja. Part of that was the expedited process of wanting to leave as soon as possible and, and doing doing. So from like making the decision and leaving three or four months later, Mm. we just never had enough time to do all of the things and and learn the language. Um, We had some fantastic experiences once we got farther south into Central America, did some did some language courses and and actually started to speak Spanish a little bit better. So you did a few immersion courses. Yeah. So how, we did, did that, how did that go? Where did you do those at? Uh, we did it and think that, well, we did one in Guatemala and we did one in um, beforehand in Guanajuato in Mexico. Yeah. I've heard that Guanajuato has great and that what a cool little town that is. It right? was. Yeah. So we camped up on the hills with the dogs and the fireworks. Um, so if you've been great. there. You understand Yeah. for a couple of weeks, walked down through into the town through the smog tunnels that they have and walked into town every single day. I love those tunnels too. But they were so cool. They were very cool. And we then actually, we actually camped at a, a fairly open, it looked like a soccer field. It was a few miles out of town. So it was a different camp spot, oh yeah. but did you go to the Museo de los Momias? We did. Yes. That freaked me out. Yeah. Saw, <laughs> which, I did. I was, so th- those that are listening, that's the, the museum of the mummies and there's a unique soil configuration in Guanajuato that allows for this rapid mummification. And if the 
families can't afford to keep up the grave pots plots. They just dig them up and put them on display. <laughs> and I'm walking through this thing, which I'm already like a, like a, like a Harry Potter film is like an 11 for me. I'm like <laughs> the scary scale. So I'm walking through this museum trying to have an experience. And I came across like the little baby with its mouth open, like it's screaming. And I was, I could not get out of that place fast enough. Yeah, I remember that. I remember that was such a wuss. There, there are a few places like that along the road. Yeah. It was so cool though. I mean, it, I mean, I would recommend that people go there, but if yeah. like I, I was terrified, I like could not get out of that place fast enough. <laughs> yeah. So we, so we spent the rest of our time in an Airbnb not being freaked out. So yeah, it was great. Oh uh, yeah. Guanajuato is gorgeous. I mean, yeah. what a beautiful town in the middle of Mexico and nobody knows about it mostly. Oh, no. no. and uh, the food, the street food was so amazing. We met uh, um, this guy from Nelson, BC, who started a restaurant there too. So we had a fancy little race restaurant in town and a little taste of home with a little bit of Mexico thrown in there. Nice. There's some good experiences. That courtyard and just the way that it's the whole place is built. It just feels like a little bit of Europe in a way. And it's just, yeah, what a special little spot. Yeah. The colonial towns were very, very interesting to go and explore. Yeah. And what other, what other advice would you give people that are getting started with overlanding? Um, I guess the thing is like, don't be afraid to just go and learn. Don't make a schedule. Don't say you're going to go for two years. If you're not sure if you're going to go for two years, you don't have to make any expectations for yourself or anybody else. You can just Make a list of things that you need to go before, need to do before you leave. Check those things off. Leave. If you love it, keep going. If you don't love it, you stop. Yeah. Um, we have a couple of close friends, Brina and Spencer. They built a little FJ40 up in Alaska, tore it all apart, put it together, put a rooftop tent on it. And by the time we met them in um, uh, Eastern Mexico, they were done. Yeah. They had had enough of it. So they actually went down to Guatemala bought a sailboat, sent their, uh, their, their 40 back home to, or back into Texas, I think is where it ended up and not Hawaii eventually, but they went and bought a sailboat and then sailed that home Yeah, because they just felt way more comfortable sailing than they did in their, uh, rattle trap 40 series. Sure. Sure. And, and I think that's, it's so key to remember that travel is so personal Yes. That it doesn't have to be a version of what you saw on YouTube or whatever. It can be your own version. And maybe it's that you like fast cars and you decide that you want to drive a Porsche down to Ushuaia, which can totally be done. done. Yeah. <laughs> can can totally be done. So I think traveling in the way that you want to travel is is a really key piece yeah. of that. And it'll change. Like whether you change or your your significant other that you're traveling changes or you have yeah. kids and they start to get older, it's gonna yeah. change. So don't be afraid to just switch gears or change directions. Sure. Yeah. Just keep doing what you want to do. Now, I, this is something that I like to ask in most of these podcasts. Uh, do you have any favorite books or books that you've been reading recently that you think people would enjoy? Yeah. Um, so the books I've been reading recently, um, there's a book called A Voyage for Mad Men. can't remember who the author is, but it's a story about the Golden Globe race um, back in the 60s that one of the London newspapers put on. And it was a race around the world to see who was the, the first person to sail around the world unassisted without stopping and who would do it the fastest. Mm. And the stories that are in that book from those guys that, that sailed alone around the world or part of the way around the world, just nothing we ever do will compare to that. Yeah. Yeah. Some, uh, some pretty interesting stuff in down there in the Southern ocean. That one's on my short list. So thanks for bringing it up and reminding me. Yeah. That's it's a good. fun one. And then another one I had read was the monk of Mocha and it was a Yemeni American gentleman who decided that he wanted to go back to Yemen and start growing coffee. 
So he found these farmers that, um, that could go, that wanted to and could grow coffee and help them cultivate a little bit of a, a new, a new business that was existed years ago. It was one of the first places that grew coffee and he wanted to bring that business back to life there. And it's a story about his travels there and getting stuck in some pretty serious conflict mm. and has a lot of detail about where coffee came from and where it is now. So it kind of just took all of these things I'm very interested in and overlapped them together. And it was something I Coffee and travel. Yeah. Perfect. Exactly. I think, I think I read the book in two days cause I just couldn't put it down. Oh, that's a good one. I love that. I love yeah. that. Well, Richard, thank you so much for being on the podcast and thank you for inspiring so many of us. Your travels, both Ashley, Ashley and your travels have always been very inspiring to me. I think it's such an important story to be told. You guys are doing amazing work. So Richard, how do people find out more about you and your travels? Um, best way to get in. Well, get in touch with us or see what we're up to is on Instagram at uh, Destaglory. Um, we always check uh, emails coming in from info at Destaglory.com as well. So anytime you have any questions or you just want to talk to somebody about traveling through Mexico, Central, South America or anything, any questions whatsoever you have for us, just email info at Destaglory.com and we can always hop on a Zoom call or just email back and forth or meet you for coffee. Well, it's so it's so important for people that are planning to do a trip, like you mentioned, to be able to talk to someone who's actually done it. So that's just really thoughtful of you to be able to be available like that. Yeah. And the reason we're available is because there are other people that were available to us. Yeah. You know, we just pass it along. We had so, so many people who were willing to give up some time just to give us a few bits of advice or a little encouragement along the way. And we're always, always happy to do the same. Well, Richard, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Uh, Your journey and Ashley's journey has been such an inspiration to so many people. And to me, I think that you guys have done it in such an open and authentic way, which the industry needs. They need to feel like we all need to feel like we can go out and do it. Yeah, you can't. If we can do it, most people can do it. Yeah. So that thank you so much again for being on the podcast. And thank you all for listening. And we will talk to you next time.